Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaka Personal Finance. My name's DevRaka. I'm your host, and we have a very special guest tonight. We actually have Dr. VJ, who is a renal specialist working in the state of New South Wales. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. VJ. Hi, Dev. You are a renal specialist. We'll get into that in a moment. And then in this episode, you've kindly agreed to be a guest to talk about money and also your life and your sort of specialty in general. And we're going to talk broad topics such as savings, any side hustles that you may do, your views on debt, superannuation insurance, and we'll go a lot more deeper into that. So are you ready to get started? Yeah, can't wait. No worries. Okay, let's get started. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Now, if you're new to the podcast, don't forget to contact me via Facebook or Twitter if you have any specific questions. And remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, is it okay if I call you VJ rather than Dr. VJ? Yeah, that's fine. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So you said you're a renal specialist, and I think you said a renal fellow. Uh, What does that mean for the people that are not in the healthcare industry? So renal fellow essentially uh, a doctor who's done all his training, his her training in the field of um, renal medicine. But as you know, especially in metropolitan like Sydney and Melbourne, it's really hard to get onto a consultant job straight away. So you've got to do other things, um, subspecialize or do a PhD to be able to get that consultant job at a hospital. And in that period of time, the term fellow is used. So it's essentially a fully trained renal physician, but just doing some extra subspecialty training. Okay. So just to be very clear for the non-healthcare workers, you've done med school, you've done internship, you've done residency, you've done registrarship, you've passed your final exams. So you are a consultant in your own right, but you're just doing some additional subspecialty training within the field of renal medicine. Yes, that's right. So not everyone does this, but... um you know, you can choose to do it to do some subspecialty training. And for the junior doctors listening on, what that means is that to get a position in a tertiary hospital in a, you know, respected high-profile hospital in major state hospitals, you kind of need additional qualifications, a PhD, an associate professorship to be able to actually get into the door of these prestigious public hospitals, essentially. And that, that's kind of what you're aiming to do. Yeah, that's right. So, but there's nothing stopping you after finishing your qualification as a renal physician without doing fellowship to start your private practice. Nothing stopping you from doing that. No, and, and actually I am doing some private practice on top as well. And lots of my colleagues, you know, they can go on to um, working in private hospitals and also private clinics. But it's just that in renal medicine, you do need to work. I think it's beneficial to work in a public hospital because of 
patients who are on dialysis and other interventions that need to be done. So that's why most of the renal trainees end up doing some fellowship at the end. Okay. And for the non-medics out there, the non, non-healthcare workers, renal just means kidney. So we'll get that out of the way in case you sort of listen to the entire episode and find out what does renal actually mean. Can I ask then, does that mean you're also a general physician? So is it quite common that people become a general physician and then go on and do renal physician training? Um, most of the time we actually go on. Yeah, so we do do some general training before the exams. And then after the exam, which is called basic physician training, we then do our specialist training. So yeah, we do, do for the first three years, we do general training before we go on to specialist training. Okay. So if you're a medical student listening in, I'm just going to ask Vijay to just highlight how many years it has taken him to become a renal fellow. So in case we've got a junior doctor, a medical student, anyone aspiring to become a doctor, can you just walk your pathway? What was your pathway to become where you are now as a renal consultant specialist, subspecialist training a fellowship? Yeah, so I got on to med school straight from year 12 in Queensland. And then I went on to do internship um, and a year of residency. And then following that, you do something called basic physician training. So that's something you have to do regardless of what whatever specialty you want to do, whether it's cardiology, gastroenterology. And so that is normally two years, two to three years. And then there are a set of exams written and a practical exam. And if you pass that, then you can go and apply for specialist training, which then usually takes three years, but there are some specialties that are a lot longer. And following that, you're pretty much a full-fledged specialist. So it takes, I guess, if you're, if you're really going through it without, you know, if you're going through it first time, it'll probably, from med school, it'll probably take about seven to eight years to become a fully-fledged um, specialist. So in terms of, I mean, those BPT exams, I, I have colleagues who've written those exams. I have heard they are very, very challenging. Can I just ask, so how many years are you talking about here? So you've done, you know, four years of pre-med and four years of post-grad med. Is that right? So I did a six-year undergraduate degree. Um, so I, And I didn't do any um, uh, any other courses before that. So, so six years plus one year of internship, one year of residency, two years of basic physician training, and then three years of specialist training. All right. So you're, you're a traditionalist. You've done the undergraduate traditional six-year MBBS course. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. None yeah. of this MD, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Nothing against MDs, but <laughs> I, I'm a traditionalist as well. So I also did an undergraduate six-year program. But having said that, um, as you're probably aware, Vijay, a lot of the universities are migrating towards the MD program. So yeah. let's calculate that. So six years undergrad, one year internship, that's seven. One year residency, that's eight. Three years BPT, is that right? Uh, two years. if you're, Yeah, you can do it in two years. Yeah. Right, two years, which is now 10 years now, plus another three years of advanced training once you've passed your BPT exams. So that's 13 years. And how many years are you going to do fellowship? Yes, yeah, so probably another one year. Most of the time, most people do just one year of fellowship and then they do PhD after that, which in itself is three years full time. So Okay, so we're up to 13 uh, plus another year of fellowship. We're up to mm-hmm. 14 plus another three years. We're up to 17 years of training. So... Either you're listening to this as an aspiring doctor and gone, you know what, screw this, I'm not going to do it, or you're up for the challenge. And for those of you that are non-doctors, that is intense. 
intense amount of training for 17 years. Now, can I just clarify, does that mean that pretty much up until you reach consultancy, there's regular assessments, there's supervision, there's workshops, there's continuous medical education training, there's continuous professional development, there's a multitude of exam fees. So it's a big financial hit to be 17 years potentially behind uh, other people, particularly probably not 17 years, at least sort of I'd say at least 14 years when you compare to IT, engineering, law and accountancy, similar sort of professional categories. That is a significant time lag. And can I just clarify what sort of, so when you say renal fellow, you're a non-surgical fellow. So for example, you're not a renal transplant surgeon, yeah? But you do manage transplant patients post-surgically, dialysis patients pre-surgically, et cetera. Yeah. So my job involves obviously looking after patients with kidney disease before they go on to dialysis, also working up patients for transplant and looking after the patients right after their transplant surgery for the long term. And also there's some interventions associated uh, with our specialty as well. Right. Okay, cool. No worries. And can I ask, maybe just give us a bit of a glimpse about your day-to-day life. So, you know, what about things like hours of work during training versus after training? And now that you're a consultant, you're a fellow, what about on-call commitments? So in, yeah, in terms of uh, my weekday um, hours, it's, it's normal, you know, eight to 4.30 job. So it's seven and a half hours in the weekday. And in this hospital that I'm working, I do do on-call as well. So every once a weekday and possibly once every five weekends, um, we do on-call. So that means, and during that time, you can get you know, on uh, transplants that can come up. So which in which case you have to go to the hospital and in the weekends, that's normally um, eight hour days for both Saturday and Sunday to do ward rounds. And also, can I ask in terms of your sort of like, I mean, once you become a renal specialist and a fellow and you've done your PhD, do you have to continue training further on or is it just basically competency assessments or continuing professional development like every other specialty? Is there anything unique about renal specialty? Yeah. So no, I think it's the same as every other specialty. You just have to keep up with your continuing uh, continuing professional development. Some people do choose to subspecialize while they're consultant, especially if there's a hospital that doesn't offer a particular service and they just want to get that service running. I've seen that in a couple of my bosses essentially, but uh, most of the time it's just CPD points. Right. Okay. And going one step back, you mentioned about the BPT exams. What's the pass rates for those exams and how does that compare to other specialties, particularly College of Surgeons, which have the part ones and part twos? I think I can't comment about the other colleges, but I know the BPT success rate is around 60%. The written tends to be a bit lower than the clinical exams. Um, so the written tends to be around 50 to 60% and the clinical possibly 60 to 70%. In terms of the other colleges, I'm from what I got told, I know the anesthetic college, the exams are very hard to the exit exams are quite hard, but the others, I'm, I'm not, I'm not very sure about that. Um, sure. Yeah. So I actually remember back in the day of being a bulldog. Uh, do they still have that these days with the College of uh, Physicians? Yeah, they do. It's a very important role, and it's it's actually it's it's a very good learning opportunity for the juniors as well. And um, so it's something that I did as a junior, and and as when you're doing the exam, it's a very very important role. 
Yeah, no worries. Yeah, look, I did it for the paediatric um, exams and also did it for the adult exams. I found it very useful and it gave me a very unique perspective on what these candidates go through, these exam phases. If you're an aspiring you know, medical student or intern or resident and you're thinking about any training program, ring up the college and say, can you be a bulldog? You need to have specific qualities, et cetera. And basically what a bulldog is, they help the candidate out during the day of the examination because it's a very, very stressful time and literally makes or breaks their career, essentially. So pathway to renal physician sounds like a horrendous pathway of potentially 14 to 17 years of training. And that's the quickest way, dare I say, that's the quickest way that you can become a renal specialist, especially if you wanted to do some subspecialty training. Um, Let's get into the actual money side of things. Let's talk about savings. So as a renal specialist, if you're comfortable, what sort of income would potentially aspiring renal specialist uh, be looking at? So renal consultant. So as a consultant, um, I think especially in the modern times, you don't get a 1.0 job. It's very rare to get that. So that's a full-time um, job. So you get a part, uh, most of the time it's around 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 of a job. And most, it, on average, it's around, from my understanding, it's around $300,000. But the, I know there are different levels and things that you can choose, which is quite complex. But in on average, it's possibly around the 300000 mark. But obviously, on top of that, you do have, you can do extra private clinics, proceduralist can um, also bill extra as well. So you're looking at that kind of a ballpark um, figure of around 300,000, I think, as a consultant. Okay. Mm. And what sort of proceduralist work can a renal physician do? So this is, not every hospital does this, but we can put vas- a perm- something called permacathin, which is a line that we use to do dialysis. And also uh, peritoneal dialysis catheter, which is another form of doing dialysis as well. And renal physicians, they do a lot of renal biopsies, which we use to diagnose lots of kidney conditions as well. And so these are probably the three big procedures. But I know some of the other um, physicians, especially in New South Wales, who can also, um, you know, open up fistulas and do something called fistulaplasty where they open up the fistula to help it work better. So there are lots of interventions um, and there's actually, it's becoming a subspecialty of renal medicine intervention and nephrology. Right. Okay. I actually didn't realize that you guys did the biopsies. I thought it was probably done by the surgeons or the interventional radiologists or something like that. Do you do it under ultrasound guidance just out that's, of interest? or? Yeah, that's right. With Linda Kane and, um, and ultrasound right. guidance. Yeah. And just under local? Under local, that's right. Yeah. No sedation? Uh, no sedation. Unless the patient's quite anxious, then we get, you know, our anesthetics fellows involved. But most of the time, 99% of the right. time, it's undone under local. And for non-healthcare workers, that means sticking a needle in your right or left side of your back under local anesthetic. So three hundred, maybe $400,000. How do you maximise your savings? Can I just ask what your savings rate is as a renal physician at the moment? At the moment, it's close to the 20%. We've just had a, a new child, so I'm just trying to increase that saving up a bit more, but not I'm not quite there at the moment. But at the moment, I'm going at 20%, which I'm pretty happy on. And, and you did mention you've got private practice as well. So do you basically save all of your private practice income and just try and live off your public work? That's right. Yeah. So that's what I try to do at the moment. And I work once a fortnight, um, which is, um, yeah, which, which is quite helpful. Yeah. Okay. And having that sort of dual source of income. Um, can I ask, is your partner also a doctor or? Yeah, she is. She's, um, she's doing her endocrine training. So she's in her final year at the moment. Okay. So very similar training pathway then. And then let's say if you work extra or you, you have a couple more extra patients in the private practice, what do you do with that extra income? I mean, you've got a base rate of 20%, I'm assuming after tax savings rate. So what do you do with all the extra income if you do have any? 
At the moment, I pretty much divide that into, put, I do have a, an ETF kind of portfolio with, between me and my wife. And then the 50% of it then goes directly into my home loan as, and stays in as a, yeah, so to offset my home loan essentially. Okay. So if you made extra money, 50% of that goes to your home loan offset due to the high interest rates at the moment. And then the rest of it just goes into an ETF portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So you don't, you don't spend that money essentially. Whatever extra money you get, you try and no, save so that money to, for the benefit. That's right. We try to save that. Yeah. Okay. Do you locum as well, just out of interest? What are the prospects for renal physicians and locuming? So I don't locum as such because I've got a full-time job during the weekday, but I know a lot of my f- colleagues who do locum and that's, and it's actually very good pay as well. It's around, in New South Wales, it's around $2,000 a day, but it does involve going into rural New South Wales. So, and it does involve uh, working for around two to three weeks or even up to four weeks at a time. But at the moment, given my full-time commitments, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But I think when I do my PhD, I think that's uh, something that I will have to do to get that extra income. Yeah, because as a PhD, you're a student. So you literally have no job and you literally have to either work privately or make your own way. That's right. Yeah. You can get scholarships, but they're not, you know, they, they don't give a lot of money. So you are depending on your locum work and your private work during that time. So literally you're getting a pay cut to become more qualified? Yes, that's right. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, so that's kind of the definition of opportunity costs in terms of you, you've gone from a pay of about maybe, you know, three to $400,000 to how much does a PhD student make or is it literally zero income? It depends on the scholarship, but most of the time it's around $50,000. There's no tax on those scholarships. So it's around $50,000 in a year. Right. So an equivalent of about $80,000 gross income. So, I mean, that to me, listening to that makes me anxious because, and I assume that's why you're trying to save as much money now, because you know there's a pay hit coming your way in the next couple of years, perhaps. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of listeners at the moment listening in had just a massive anxiety attack because you've gone from an income of three hundred, three fifty thousand dollars, particularly the non-healthcare worker who's thinking that's a phenomenal income, and it is on average. And you're willing to take that pay cut uh, for the benefit of your career, and I suppose you are trying to invest in your career for that ideal job in a major quaternary center. What about debt? And we talked a little bit about locuming, but what about debt? You did mention about mortgage. Do you have any other sort of bad debt, like consumer loans or anything like that? Or No, I don't, not at the moment. Um, I don't have, except for mortgage, and I do have a investment property as well. But other than that, um, I don't have any other debt. Perfect. Okay. Mm. And your view on borrowing money to invest, so particularly on the share side or ETF side? So I was pretty much against that until possibly recently. So when I went to do my tax this year, my accountant has suggested splitting my loan and then directing my funds through that loan and then from that loan into my shares account and then using that interest rate as a tax deductible kind of way of for those um, shares. So I, I guess the only thing is the interest rate, that there is a bit of an interest rate gap between the two um, loan accounts, but it's not that much of a difference. It's only probably around 03 or 0.4% different between the two. So that's, I guess, the only way I, where I possibly use money to borrow. But most of the other times, I just use my own salary. And then every, every fortnight, I have a certain amount that goes directly into this share portfolio uh, from both my, myself and my wife's account. So it's like it's a frequent fortnight repayment. Okay. And I'm assuming your wife is also in a public practice? That's right. Yeah. It's a pretty steady job. 
So hopefully she can sort of earn that income to financially support the family while you go and do your professorship and also likewise the other way around. When she, when she maybe wants to do it, then you can you, know, you would have finished by then hopefully and then you can do your private practice and support the family. So I suppose provides a bit of context and probably alleviates my anxiety a little bit, but I'm still pretty anxious. So what you're really suggesting through your accountant or your accountant suggesting to you is debt recycling, essentially trying to split the loans and trying to recycle the debt from a non-deductible you know, method to a deductible loan. And it just means you have two separate loans. One's your principal place of residence loan and the other one is deductible loan. But presumably that would mean that you may have to borrow more money and equity on your home. Is that the plan? No. So I was able to just split what I had remaining into two different accounts. So I didn't need to borrow anything extra. But that split up account was, it just had a slightly increased interest rate on that. Okay. And then one account is tax deductible and the other one is not really, essentially. Yeah. That's an interesting situation because I always thought you had to actually borrow extra on your home loan to access your equity and then set up a set up almost like a line of credit to make it into debt recycling. So that's interesting. So that's that's kind of what you're kind of what you're doing or you're going to do? No, I've just started doing that probably a couple of months in now after in, into doing that. Yeah. Okay. Which means the dividends from the investments that you get the income that you get from your investments, whether it be ETFs, whatever, presumably those dividends would be then used to pay off your non-deductible debt. Is that the way you're going to structure it or are you going to reinvest it no, into the I'm, actual investment? Yeah, so at the moment, I am reinvesting my dividends. And yeah, I'm not really paying anything extra into that second loan. Um, it's just what's going to go into those stocks. I make those payments, but not really anything much more than that. Yeah. Okay. So when you say you're not paying extra, what you mean is you're just going to pay the interest rate um, and not really pay the principal off. And then whatever dividends that you get from the ETF portfolio from those loans that you've, you know, you've just invested that money, those dividends will go back into the ETF portfolio. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting setup because usually what people do is they take the dividends and then they try and pay off their non-deductible debt to try and minimize the non-deductible debt and quote unquote, maximize their deductible debt. Mm-hmm. So th- this is sort of something that No Whitaker talks about a lot, sort of the, the classic debt recycling. You're doing it slightly differently, but that's interesting. Just picking up your point about locums, I just wanted to flag everywhere that when I was a junior doctor, I locumed a lot. And one of the things that I noticed, and do, is that something that you did as well? I did, yeah. So last year I did do a lot of locuming in private hospitals, but just this year um, it's not been possible yet. Sure. I did it a lot for two reasons. One reason is, of course, you make extra money. So essentially, you're converting your free time that you would have just probably, you know, done nothing with it and procrastinated and slept in or whatever, basically converting that precious time into uh, an income. So trading time for income, but otherwise it would have gone to waste. That's number one. Number two is the invaluable experience that I gained from locuming and putting myself in situations which allowed me to become a better clinician. I think that has made me a better clinician and a better doctor. Would you agree with that? Like, I mean, obviously, I'm just curious what your views on about that, because a lot of people talk about locuming from an income standpoint, which I agree with. But the biggest advantage that I found, VJ, was I became a better doctor. I was able to put myself in a situation, particularly in rural remote areas, where I'd be sole doctoring, and I just became a better clinician. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I um, did my law coming in a private ED in a private hospital. And and, norm- and as, like I said before, I think for the last probably six years, I've only done physician-related things. And 
I was able to do a lot of, you know, put on casts. I was able to see some children as well, obviously under supervision. So it really, I think it really allowed me to broaden my medicine a bit more. And I think that, yeah, I, I find it quite, it's a very, very valuable thing to do. And I would really encourage um, juniors to do that as well. Yeah. Um, we talk about investments a lot. We talk about money investments, but that locum opportunities is a career investment. That's a clinical skill investment. So for, for listeners out there, don't just think about investing in money stuff, invest in yourself, health, well-being, mental health, et cetera, of course, and also gain those clinical skills or whatever skills that you may have, whether you're a lawyer, accountant, doesn't podiatrist, doesn't matter. If you just work more, you tend to be better at what you do. It's as simple as that. Now, so far, great conversation, and I'm still digesting the fact that you're 17 years post uh, getting into medical school. That's staggering to me. We'll just take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to pick your brain about superannuation, insurance, and a couple of other things. So we'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, welcome back. We are with Dr. Vijay, who's a renal specialist and a fellow training to be a fully-fledged renal specialist, although technically he's already a consultant, but I think he's gunning for that quaternary position. So he's going to go and do some more training, particularly to a research project or a PhD. So, uh, and we've established he's about potentially 15 to 17 years post his entrance into medical school. Now, superannuation, Vijay. What's your general view? I assume you get superannuation through your hospital. I'm just curious. I find that superannuation uh, is very, very important and I do contribute extra and I really try to max out the superannuation. Um, recently, I've just, uh, we've just been on some single income, so I've been, uh, I haven't been able to do that. But um, ever since my wife went back into work, I've really restarted doing that as well. And I think it's really good to see that big value grow over time, especially because I did a lot of work, even as a med student, I did a lot of jobs, small jobs here and there. And, and my superannuation has been growing since that time. So I think it's really encouraging to see that grow. And I think it's a really, really good component of your investment. Yeah, absolutely. And And, and what do you, how do you see superannuation in your financial independence journey or retirement journey? Where, where does that fit in? Is that you're going to be a primary 
sort of source of retirement income or are you sort of really thinking that's more icing on the cake? I think for me, it's it's a combination. So I don't know whether this is right or wrong, but I've got a, a set figure in mind. And superannuation is, is a component of that total figure that's yeah, for my retirement. So it's definitely a big component of my, um, I guess, my retirement or my total um, value that I'm trying to get it on top of the ETFs and uh, the properties that I'm, I'm investing in at the moment. Okay. Am I allowed to ask? And, and by the way, for the audience, Vijay is not his real name. Far from it. It's an alias. And of course, we want to protect the privacy of our guests, which should be ironic if we didn't because I'm also anonymous. But anyway, can I ask what that figure is? What is your figure if you want to divulge it live or you can say no? So no, no I, I'm happy to. Um, so I've got a, a figure of 8 million at the end of my retirement. And that's inclusive of both um, superannuation and the ETFs. And the amount that I'm contributing to ETFs is to try and get to that mark. And I've I've used multiple calculators and things online, and I use a very uh, conservative interest rate. Uh, Oh, sorry, not an interest rate, but, you know, I probably put around 6% for profit um, just in case future, there's not much of an income from that. So that's my kind of ballpark kind of figure that I'm looking at. And then I'm trying to contribute on top for to try and reach that figure at the at the age of probably 65, 66. I know a lot of people think about retiring early. I personally, I think I'm someone who will probably cut down my work, but I'll probably still work till I can as much as, uh, as uh, however long I can, because I do really like my job. And secondly, I've just been off on a a very long holiday and I've just realized, you know, staying at home is just not my thing. So as something that I would want to do, I probably will just wind down and just work at a lower, lower fraction, but still continue to work until that 65, 67 years of age. Yeah. I mean, if you've done 17 years of training, I would expect nothing less because you wouldn't want to do all that and say, oh, I've done five years of renal specialty training and and five years of consultancy and I want to retire now. That would be clearly for people that do that level of training, you must absolutely love your job and 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 love the specialty that you're in. So that's that's a really, really long time to train. I cannot stress that enough for those of you that are not doctors. I mean, think about it. Vijay would have entered medical school age 17, 18. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you're probably in your mid to late 30s now and you're still training. Whereas presumably your lawyer colleagues, your tradesperson's colleagues are well and truly finished their training uh, and well and truly settled and probably peaking in their career and you're kind of just starting. That's right. Yeah. So that's something to consider. Now, where did the 8 million come from? I'm just curious. Why 8 million? So the reason why I came up with that 8 million is I used your 4% rule. And when uh, when I used the 4% rule, I think I got about, I think, $250,000 a year. And then I put 50% going to tax from that. And then we'll end up with 125000 for both of us. And that's with our home loan paid off. So that's, we felt that was a good good kind of income, as, especially with the um, mortgage paid off to be able to live off that and live comfortably as well. But obviously, you know, you know inflation is, is, a, is a component, it's a, it's a factor that I need to, to, I guess, factor in. So that's something that will need to be considered a bit more in the future. But at this stage, I was thinking that 8 million mark will be able to, will be able to live quite comfortably yeah, in retirement. So that is 8 million outside of your fully paid off home or is that inclusive of your fully paid off home? So I have not put the houses into calculation. And obviously, if 
I, I do have an investment property and that's that'll probably be a bonus. But it's just that I'm not sure. It's, it's just, it's a very unstable kind of factor of the property. So I guess I don't want to include that in at the moment. I want to try and work on things that I can control. So that's why I put that 8 million, including that includes my ETFs as well as my superannuation. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because that's your investable assets where it's actually producing you an income, and presumably, you know, you don't want to really draw down on that eight million. You want to live on the actual dividends. Um, I should probably clarify, VJ. The four percent rule is not my rule. It's it's something that um, a lot of financial people talk about. It comes from a Trinity study back in the day, I think. But nowadays, people are saying that it's planned for three, three and a half percent. But of course, it really depends on what your yearly returns are, what your dividends are, what the franking credits are going to be. If you're an Australian investor, whether that even exists by the time you reach your retirement phase, we don't know. But essentially, what we've learned is superannuation is a pretty important part of your retirement. It may not be the sole retirement strategy, but it is a tax-effective and tax-advantaged strategy. And I assume you want to maximize that as much as possible and reach that $1.9 million cap um, as much as possible. And same same with your partner as well. I'm assuming 8 million together, right? I mean, oh, 8, it's 8 million, million together, per that's person. Right. Yeah, not together. Yeah, okay. yeah. So you're not, you're not that greedy because I mean, usually no, physicians no, no. are, <laughs> usually physicians are, you know, not that greedy. Now, um, insurance. Do you have personal insurance? You did mention you've, you've got a couple of kids. So I've got one child. Um, we do have income protection and both me and my wife have income protection. We got that before the price rise in 2020. Plus, you know, we have private health insurance as well, home insurance as well. So those are, I guess, our three main. Yeah. So you, you got insurance before that April 2020 rule when they basically said uh, agreed value policies are no longer allowed for income protection. That's oh, sorry. right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. agreed value. Beg yeah. your pardon. Yeah. So you're yeah. you you escape that uh, escape that rule. So for all of you new newbies out there, if you haven't got insurance, unfortunately, the agreed value policies are out the door. You can't get it. So the new rule is indemnity value policy. So that's good that you actually foresaw that and got your insurance sorted out when you're young and healthy. You know, otherwise your insurance premiums uh, skyrocket. Can I ask all up in terms of income protection? Do you have life? I do have life insurance as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And TPD trauma? Uh, TPD trauma as well. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So how much do you spend per year for insurance just for yourself? We haven't talked about your partner yet. I think it's close to around 3000 to $4,000 a year. That's not too bad. Yeah. So, I mean, I was sort of expecting around the seven to $10,000 mark, but that's not too bad. Yeah. And there's presumably if we had to get your insurance today post yeah. April 2020, you're probably in that sort of seven to 10K mark. That's right. Yeah. Have you chosen a stepped premium for your income protection and life? So I've got the the, the other one, which is um, it stays pretty much level. the same throughout. Yeah. So I've got the level premium. And also recently, I think I said inflation proof as well. Uh, I think there was, yes. there was an option that came up. So I, I've ticked that option as well. So um, that's, yeah, right. So that's right. Level then. Yeah, that's good. Same with me. Uh, all of my premiums are level. It's sort of expensive in the start, but then it sort of tends to be more and more cheaper. And of course, the whole point of all this is to build enough assets so that we don't need to have insurance. So hopefully in the next sort of 10 or 15 years, you'll be self-insured and you don't need insurance, particularly income protection. Life I'll always have. Now, children and financial independence. You've already said uh, you've got one child. So congratulations on that. Presumably, are you planning for more children? And where does kids fit in, in terms of your investing journey? Yeah, so I think we are planning for probably one more child. Um, and in terms of investment, I guess our background investment will probably still continue, especially to the ETFs. And I'm 
I was, I think me and my wife, we were thinking whether we should invest separately for our child, um, especially when they're very young, but something we haven't quite finalized yet, but I think I do want to do that. But I guess for us, what, what I felt was that if we have a good network, then, you know, when we do pass it on, we can always pass it on when we are not here anymore. So that's something I believe in. So it's just investing on ourselves will probably help our future generations as well. So that's one of the reasons I haven't really jumped into putting extra uh, money just on a, on a child kind of stocks as well. So that I, I tend to agree. I mean, a lot of people ask me this question. They say, Dev, you know, how do you invest for your kids? I'm not a great fan of investing specifically for your kids, but I'm a great fan of investing for yourself and protecting it for your children. Because, I mean, a lot of people that ask me this question often are not financially secure themselves. It's it's kind of like, you know, I mean, using a really, really bad analogy here, uh, but I'm going to use the analogy of, you know, uh, drinking or smoking and trying to tell other people to stop smoking. You know, it just doesn't work. So I agree with you. I think I'm very much investing for myself, my family. And then after me, my kids can have my money. If there's any left, I'm going to spend it all, by the way, kids, if you're listening. But uh, if there is any, we've got a robust will and estate planning, which goes to the good segue. Do you have a will and estate planning? Yes, we've just recently got one, uh, especially when my parents were getting one, we, we got one as well, so really, really important. Yeah. So, I mean, I cannot stress this enough because, I mean, you, you'd see this, I mean, you'd see a lot of chronic health patients in your specialty dialysis and you sort of wonder how many of those patients who know that they are going to die as a result of their illness, particularly the really, really complex nef- nephropathic patients. You just, have you ever wondered whether they've got a will and estate planning? I'm just curious, does the advanced care plan yeah. dwell into that when you're counseling these patients? Yeah. So advanced care planning is a very, very important part of my clinic, actually, um, it's something that's stressed, especially with these patients with multiple medical conditions. Um, it's something that I really focus on because especially when people are well and they've got good cognition and they're thinking well at the moment and they're relatively healthy, I think it's really important to think about this because I've seen many of my patients who come in very unwell, they can't quite think well, they're, you know, they're confused, they're delirious. And then at that point, trying to you know, coming up, not only your medical decisions, but also your other uh, life decisions are extremely hard. And you're depending on your relatives to make the decisions for you at that point. So I think it's really, really important that, you know, things are written down uh, because it makes it much easier, especially in a medical sense, it's really easy. It's much easier, especially when you have a clear goals in place um, that you can work towards. Really important. Yeah, absolutely important. I actually used to cover renal and dialysis in a peripheral center up until, you know, we, I was sort of working in this sort of ED urgent care space and we had to cover this sort of small dialysis unit uh, where the renal physicians were off site. So we would often be the first port of call. And when you get that sort of code blue met call response for those patients, I used to be, I used to be extremely anxious because these patients are really fickle. They are very, very sick. You know, you, you give them a little bit of fluid and they tip them over the edge and they go into APO. If you don't give them enough fluids, the kidneys shut down. It was so complex and it really bogs my mind how sick these patients are, even their skin, you know, uh, bruising. And, and you can see that um, how important the role the kidney plays. And you don't really appreciate it until you actually see these patients who have so many different medications. And, I, and I'll tell you this story. We, we used to rewrite drug charts um, uh, to help our renal colleagues out because, you know, they'd be very busy and we used to write them out. And, you know, I'd like to think that I'm a seasoned clinician. I'd like to think that I've done a fair bit of specialty training and, and, and I'd like to think that I've handled, you know, surgical cases, medical cases, phys- physician's cases. 
And when you write these renal drug charts, first of all, they go forever. And second of all, there's medications I've never even heard of. <laughs> Just like, and I sort of thought to myself, how can I be a doctor, you know, relatively senior, you know, through, going through my middle of my career at the moment, but, you know, I'm, I'm not a junior doctor by any means. Um, I've, I've been a consultant for a while. And I'm still encountering medications in this late in my career where I've never even heard of it. And, and I thought to myself, there's so much to this specialty that I don't know about. Uh, and that in oncology, I mean, I mean, if you've ever done oncology, all these medications and all these drugs have never, everything with MAB and this and that and platin. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Whereas I'm just prescribing Panadol. Like, what the hell are you talking about? But it's so, so complex. So I really appreciate what you guys do. Oh, yeah, no, I think I'm just, uh, what I was trying to say is I think it's just modern medicine. I think we are very super specialized in what we do that sometimes we don't, we don't have a good grasp on, I guess technology has advanced as well. So we don't really have a grasp on the other specialties anymore because we've just quite super specialized in what we do in modern medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and of course, if you're treating transplant patients and you've got the anti-rejection drugs and you're like, oh my God, that's another layer of complexity where patients come in with, with those drugs layered on top of the other drugs and, and literally keeping them alive. So it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff, but very complex. Um, cover dialysis anymore. I don't cover renal anymore. I don't miss it anymore. So, so, so I've done my time. Now, I ask this question to everyone that come on board, public versus private school, being a parent. Do you have any views on that and your own personal experience of schooling uh, before you got into medical school? Yeah, so both me and my wife, we both went to public school before we got on to university. And we've actually had a discussion about this. Um, and I think at this stage, probably in primary school, we'll probably will be putting our kids into public school. I guess one is proximity to our house. And also, secondly, I think we feel that primary school probably there's not a lot of extracurricular activities and things that we can possibly be fine. And then at this stage, we're thinking maybe we might end up putting um, our children into private school when they're in that high school um, phase. But again, not sh- quite sure. As you know, I don't know if you know, in New South Wales, there's selective schools as well, which are um, very, very good, especially academically. But And so that's something that's in the back of our mind as well. But yeah, um, the good thing about private school, from what I can understand, is good extracurricular activities. Something that possibly when I grew up in a public school, I didn't really um, get exposed to. I had to do all my extracurricular activities on my own in the weekend. So that's something that's possibly an advantage. But I think even that we can, it's easily manageable. We can always, you know, do extra stuff in the weekend on our own as well. So yeah, at this stage, probably leaning towards public but maybe private as a, in, in the high school. That's our thinking at the moment. Mm. Did you go to public school in which era? In the late 90s or early 2000s, just out of interest? Yeah, so I went to public high school in early to late 2000s. Okay, right. Yeah. So I asked this question because do you think that public schools uh, in New South Wales, for example, do you think that if you went to the same school as you went to and you don't have to disclose it, your kids went to the same school, do you think they would get the same level of education that perhaps you got back in those days, you know, some 17, 18 mm-hmm. years ago? I'm just curious. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I guess I've been out of the loop for a long time. Um, but from what I can see from my f- family, friends, they seem to be getting pretty much what we get, we, what we got taught. Um, I think that's, I, I mean, the curriculum is the same and I think everything's the same. So it's pretty much similar to what we got. So I guess mm. I'll be pretty confident that they'll be getting what we got when we were yeah. young. Yeah. And, and, and I guess the other question is, do you think that 
with the same curriculum and the same quality of education, the competition now compared to 17, 18 years ago when you graduated in year 12, do you think the competition now is significantly higher? Yeah, so I guess this is where I'm a bit different because I actually was brought up in a rural town. Um, and so probably I I didn't have as much competition as you would have in Sydney, but my wife was brought up in Sydney and she was telling me about how you know how competitive it is here. So I think that competition, if, if anything, is actually increased. You know, when I go to my clinic, there's a tutoring school right next to my clinic and there's a big line of parents waiting every weekend to pick up their children. And that's on a Saturday. Uh, And I think it's just, that's an expectation in Sydney to do these extra tuitions and things just to be competitive. So I think that has increased. And especially in a selective school, I think that's very high. That competitive nature is still very high. I'm not quite sure about how it works in a private school, but definitely I think the competitiveness has increased from what I can see. Mm, yeah, I think this, this debate comes up a lot on financial independence forums, on you know fire discussion groups, et cetera, public versus private. If you didn't put it in private, take the money and invest it after 30 odd years, you'd be a you know decamillionaire, whatever it is. And I think I think I, I tend to agree with you. I think the eras of, you know, when you did your schooling matters. So I think with increased competition, with reduced places, I think you have to do what's best for your child. And that's not to say that every time you send your kid to private school, they're going to end up um, doing very well because a lot of the time the competition is fierce in private school and your kids may actually get really nervous and anxious because they they feel, they get perception that they're not doing as well as they probably should be to the expectations. I mean, if your parents are paying $30,000 in fees, you know, you have to have some weight of pressure on you to perform. So you've got to be a little bit careful about what sort of pressure we subtly or unsubtly openly apply on young children. I'll answer this question and, and maybe you can answer this question as well. In your specialty training and when you see patients right now, I mean, you're a specialist, right, by all intents and purposes, has any patient asked you, Vijay, what was your final year 12 mark? No, no, definitely not. No, no. And has anyone ever asked you which university you went to for medical school? Um, Very rarely, but yeah, most of the time, no one really really cares about that. Yeah. Exactly. So presumably you might have a degree and the back of your room somewhere and patients may get a glimpse of it. But in my experience, no one's ever asked me that. Hey, Dev, what's, what was your year 12 score? I don't know. I can't even remember it. They've never asked me what university that I went to. And they actually never asked me for my medical school marks. Now, for all of your listeners, uh, just to put it on the record, I did get first class distinction, just out of interest. First class honours, beg your pardon. So um, shout out to, uh, to my university and also my school of medicine, if you're listening in. But no one's ever asked me that. Has anyone asked you what what grade classes you did in medical school. And it kind of doesn't matter. And I think I I sort of tell my kids this all the time. I think it's important that you do the best you possibly can. Don't lose opportunity. Try and gain opportunity. Try and maximize your opportunity. Don't take anything for granted. But at the same time, you know, if you don't get 100% of everything, that's okay. And review and audit and reflect. It's really important. What do you think about that? Yeah. No, that's right. Um, I think, you know, especially med students out there, I think you never really tell your marks to anyone. You don't, No one really gets to know about it. But I guess certain things uh, you can work on as a medical student, you know, things like research and things, they definitely help later on. But, you know, your marks at the end of the day, 
really doesn't matter. I think even having, I mean, I, some people do have honors and things like that. And maybe that, that, that does help a bit, but most of the time your marks really don't matter. It's your other things that you do for your career that really matters, like research and other extracurricular activities. Now, we've already talked about, um, you know, your FI number, whether you believe in fire, you're going to be working till your retirement because you've done all this training. We talked about your retirement strategy, super versus outside of super investments. You said you invest in ETFs. Do you mainly stick around with Aussie ETFs or global diversified? What's your strategy there outside of super? Yeah. So I, in terms of my ETF or my shares journey really started probably about an, one and a half years ago. I, I never invested into shares before that. And my parents were very much against that. So I never did that for that reason. And initially I made a lot of bad decisions. I invested in single shares and got a lot of losses, some profits. But then I started listening to your podcast and I really started, you know, I guess, investing into um, broad ETFs. And so we have a bit of a strategy that I invest into a broad-based ETF in a, in a very popular shared portfolio. And my wife invests in everything in the world except Australia. So between us, we cover everything and we pretty much contribute 50% to, to both. So I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's how we do it. We just try and cover the, the broad world but, and I cover Australia through my ETF. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, you know, I suppose, you know, you're looking at a sizable portfolio given that eventually if both of you were specialists, you're looking at about sort of six hundred to $800,000 a year in income. So it's a fair bit of quid for you to be able to um, save and invest. So it's not your average income. But yeah, I think it sort of being well diversified and and did that sort of decision to split those investments the way that you've mentioned, how long did you take to make that decision? Because one of the common questions that people ask is they just have so many choices and they can't make that decision. They can't really start investing because they've got decision paralysis, basically. Did you encounter that? So I think it probably took me a couple of months because I was I had to catch up on all your podcasts at the time when I did start that. And I was also listening to Reading Barefoot Investor as well. Probably a couple of months and we were always, I guess I'd always decided that we were going to go into broad-based ETF. It's just what type of proportion we were going to put. That was where the decision making was. But we could, you can always change that, you know, in the future. You can always change the percentage or the proportion that goes into each ETFs in the future. But so it's, I think it's always good to start and then you can always tweak it a bit in the future. So that's what we do. And sometimes, you know, especially when we get a bit more money, I think my uh, wife's portfolio is still catching up a bit. So we do contribute a bit more to her. So you can always tweak it as you go. So I think the important thing is starting early and, um, and just maintaining it. And do you sort of, where does automation fit into all this? Yeah, so autom- so in my portfolio, it automatically gets a certain value that we um, allocate into that portfolio every fortnight. So that's the day after our salary comes in essentially and the rest of it but I do have to manually put the money into a loan um, and extra money into the shares based because our overtime changes you know on a week-to-week basis and in terms of automation I've really I guess now that I have a kid I'm really really trying to focus on being as efficient as possible and even payment for any bills so I actually uh, there's an option in my bank account called pay later. So you can actually pay at its, a day before that is due. And so I, I use that option all the, so as soon as I get something in the mail, I use that option straight away so that my money is in my home loan as much as possible until it actually needs to go into the, uh, to, to be paid. So 
Uh, that's another automation that I do that I think, uh, you know, I can just set and forget uh, once I get my bills. Yep. Which bank is that? Uh, this is Commonwealth Bank. Really? Oh, yeah. I've, I've actually never heard of that. Um, I'm going to yeah. have to look into that because that sounds like a quite a good feature. Yeah. Um, so just to clarify, so what you're saying is you get you get an email with the bill, you pay the bill using your ComBank app or do you pay the bill externally or how do you actually do that? So let's say if I get a water bill and it's due on the 15th of December. Um, so I go into my ComBank app and from my account, which has my loan in it, you can actually say pay later as an option. And you put that exact, um, the, the bill amount a day prior to it when it's due. And so, and then you just click enter and forget about it. And then just on the 14th of December, it will automatically go from that account and pay the bill. And because my home loan, we have, you know, a decent amount, it, you will never really run out of money to pay that bill. Um, so, it, you know, it's always going through and you just, you don't need to worry about it. If not, I think there's a lot of paperwork and things that make things can easily be forgotten. So this is one way that I've kind of come up with to just make sure things are paid and paid as late as possible as well. Right. So you don't use credit cards to pay any of your bills then? You, you actually use your own money? I use BPay, yeah. I use BPay to pay. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yep. I'm assuming you have a credit card. I do have a credit card, but I don't have a, a very fancy credit card like my, my friends do. Um, so yeah, it's not something that I use frequently. Mm. Yeah. You don't do frequent fly points and points hacking and all that sort of stuff with credit uh, I, cards? No, not not. A, I do have a, um, a credit card which gives me some points which came free with my loan, some kind of package. So I, at the end of the year, we can we use that for like a Myers gift card or something, but it's not a it's not a fancy um, Qantas-based credit card. To be honest, I, I, I have a credit card and I get um, points on it, uh, which I use to to buy gift cards or something like that. and But I do not use my credit card for the points feature. I use my credit card for convenience. I would never buy something just because it's going to give me points. And whenever people ask me this question, I my, my answer to them is, I mean, I speak to multimillionaires all the time, you know, privately offline. And no one's ever actually told me, Dev, I've become a multimillionaire because of my credit card points. No one's ever, that's never happened. Uh, until that person exists somewhere out there in the world, I think this is all just BS. So don't, don't do anything with credit card just because of points because the credit card companies are smarter than all of us. They figured it out and you are not going to get richer by getting all those points from using a credit card. In fact, there's a lot of research which shows you probably spend about 20% on average more by using a credit card because of the frictionless transactions uh, with PayPass and uh, PayWave and all that, so Apple Pay and Google Pay, which is basically their way of stealing money from you without you knowing that they're stealing money from you. So so you pretty much automate everything. Broad-based index funds or ETFs make it very, very simple. It's interesting. Why did you invest in individual companies or shares? And you said you made some mistakes. If it's all right with you, can you explore that a little bit more? Why did you do that? Is that because you didn't know about index funds or is that because you wanted to get rich quick? I did listen to some, I could, when, I, when I read Barefoot Investor, I think you go and talk to your friends as well about what you learned and they influence you as well. They say, oh, look, I put money into this shares and you became this much. And you're thinking, yes, maybe this is one way of, you know, earning money. But you don't really, I, I guess at that time, I didn't really understand what stocks and things were about. And so I just went along with what people were doing. It was never a lot of money, but it was, 
still in a, in a money that I would probably would never put in now for individual stocks. And that did include a small amount of crypto as well at the time, which, which I would probably not do now. So yeah, it's, I guess it's a mistake that I learned, but it is um, something that sometimes you get influenced by your friends as well. And that's, I think it's really important to know, you know, read about things properly before going into things, but obviously not take too much time as well. So it's, it's that balancing act. Mm. Look, by the time this episode airs, uh, we're recording in late 2023. This is going to air in early 2024. You did mention about cryptocurrency. And uh, as, as I'm not sure whether Vijay, you know, uh, one of the greatest and probably the most famous investors recently just died, Charlie Munger, who is a business partner with Warren Buffett. Um, I'm not sure if you read in the news or heard about it. And, and he had a very famous quote about cryptocurrency. And basically, he said something to this effect of, you know, you find out that people are trading turds, turds meaning poo, and then all of a sudden you get excited and you want to also do the same thing. And I think if you watch that video on YouTube, it rings true. I, I think cryptocurrency, you know, it's, it's, it's so risky, isn't it? Like, I mean, you, you can really go into a rabbit hole. I'm not saying, you know, don't put any money into it, but gee, if that's your primary way of retirement, you are taking a huge risk. So in 2021, famously, I, I put a post up about me opening a coin spot account and ended up putting some money into crypto because I resisted it so many times. And then I went, you know what? This is nonsense <laughs> because because you just sort of log in and all these random coins appear. Like what, what, what do they do? They don't do anything for society. I don't get it. But um, but maybe I'm just getting old. I'm not sure. Um, like, they do have a lot of hype behind it. So, you know, it's easily, it's easy to really, you know, go and buy things because your friends are doing it and there's a lot of hype and it's really advertised very well compared to stocks and things and ETFs. So, you know, it's easy to go and get into that trap, I, I suppose. So, you know, so I guess mm. it's, yeah, mm. be cautious, Look, I guess. Artificial intelligence is the other one, right? I mean, they talk about artificial intelligence and it sounds so cool. Having said that, what, one of my friends did show me a real life practical application uh, with artificial intelligence, with things like Copilot and ChatGPT, where you can re- reply to emails and you know write essays and all that sort of stuff. And and look, I've tested it out, and it's pretty, and it's pretty useful. I mean, it's cut down my time in doing some activities. Um, I don't routinely use it because you know you still kind of have to check what it writes, uh, make sure that it writes the appropriate email to the appropriate place, and the appropriate person, in the appropriate tone. Uh, I actually tested it out, and I actually wrote an email to my wife uh, using uh, uh, artificial intelligence. And she basically told me, basically found out that I'd, I'd used artificial intelligence because the way the email was structured would never be the way that I'd write an email. Um, and she said, this is way too much detail. You were too courteous. Um, this is nonsense. So stop using this technology and just email or speak to me that you normally do. So I actually found that quite funny. Now we're approaching um, the end of the episode. Um, we talked about you know, everything from your life as a renal specialist, the way you got into training, super investing, debt, leverage, debt recycling, insurance, kids. I mean, we've covered pretty much everything. We've got, you know, you've got the ear of thousands of listeners listening in, everyone from doctors to non-doctors to healthcare workers to non-healthcare workers, financial advisors regularly tune in to these episodes now, lawyers regularly tune in, um, I think one MP regularly tunes in, I think. I'm just curious, what do you think that you have learnt in your career from a financial perspective and what would you be advising listeners to do if there's one or two things perhaps from a money wins perspective? I think from a financial point of view, one regret that I have is I didn't really start what I'm doing earlier in my life. So I only started 
you know, probably 12 or so, probably 13 years um, from coming out of high school, I guess. So, you know, quite late when I started. And it, I guess in, initially I didn't really have that rigid kind of framework or, you know, saving a, p- a particular percentage, which I wish I had. But I guess at that time I had different goals in life as well and different kind of aims and different priorities. So that's, I guess, one of my biggest worry. And that's something I would probably, and something that I actually uh, make sure I tell my juniors as well to start early, start investing, even if it's a small amount, start early and because I, I want them to learn from, um, from my mistakes. And in terms of, I guess, the career wise, you know, you there's always, you, or you've got to do what's best for your career or you've got to do what you like as well. Um, obviously the money is there and that you have a particular principle that you can follow, but it's also important to do the best you can in whatever you do as well. And, um, and, and you got to love what you do as well, because you're in it for 30, 40 years. And if you don't like it, you know, it, it's going to be a hard 30, 40 years in, in the future. So, so that's, I, I guess, the two important aspects in terms of career. In terms of money wins, I had a couple of things. So possibly very, very small things. But one of the things, especially from um, a college, from a physician's college point of view, so if there's other physicians here, something that they don't use utilizes something called a member advantage so any physicians out there there's um as when you're in the college you get these particular discounts and things that are actually very very good to look at um, and i use that very frequently especially when traveling as well it's called member advantage especially with car hires and things like that and not a lot of my colleagues actually don't know it and not, even my consultants they don't really know it and it's something that i have to um, bring it up many times one of the other things where you can lose it on money is actually buying things that you don't really want. And one way we actually do that is me and my wife, we have this app called, um, it's a shopping list app. So where we can both add what we want throughout the week into this app. And then whoever is going to get the groceries, we have the list already made and we just go and get what we need from that time rather than buying things when we don't need it or going to a grocery shop buying extra potatoes when you've got more potatoes at home and things like that. So it's something I think you can we can look at. I think the app that I use is called To Doist, but there are lots of apps out there um, which which do the same thing as well. That pay later scheme, I think I really like that. It's something that I that I really find very useful. And especially when you're busy with your career and your family, you don't, you don't want to be thinking about when you have to pay your bill. You just want to pay it and forget about it and you know, have a peace of mind that it's going to get paid at a later time. Uh, and that way you're doing it right when the bill is right in your hands, you're doing it. And it only takes around one minute to do. Uh, and most of the bank account details for different companies like Waterbill are already saved in your um, in your bank anyway. So it's very easy to do. One of the other things is petrol. So obviously petrol is very, very expensive at the moment. And I mainly try to put it during weekdays because I find that from Friday and the weekend onwards, there's an extra surcharge in these prices. So I, I try to, I, we try, we don't drive as much because we do take public transport to our work because the workplace is very, very close to public transport. And it's very, very convenient actually to go on public transport, then driving. And it takes extra one hour to drive. One thing I do is I do try and put petrol in non-demand times, especially middle of the week when prices are a bit lower than the other times. So that's kind of the main things I guess I wanted to talk about in terms of yeah money wins that's a great summary i'm actually looking at the uh, racp website yeah you're right you get coles e-gift cards jb hi-fi gift cards uh, at a discount telco plans and uh, it's interesting and i think every college has some affiliations i know the college of general practitioners used to have an affiliation with tesla and also mercedes-benz if you wanted to get 
brand new car, you might get some member advantages. So that's an interesting thing. I mean, I think it's definitely worthwhile checking out. And I'm assuming as a renal specialist, you need to be a member of the College of Physicians, right? Surely you need to pay your dues. Yeah. So everyone is a a member of the college. And one thing I find really important that member advantage is actually car hire. You get 70% off. So it's actually a big discount. Yeah. So I use that a lot, even overseas, I use that um, a lot. So it's very, very So when, when, when candidates say, what's the advantage of becoming a professional college member? Well, one of the advantages you might get member uh, discounts. So that's, that's interesting because uh, I've always wondered what's the point of all these high pricey college fees in in my case which is around 1500 bucks that i have to pay to my college i'm part of two colleges look that's that's all we have time for so i'd like to thank vj for attending and explaining um his life story his investing story it is story about being a renal specialist so vj i really appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule to join us tonight thanks for inviting me no worries now If you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or Facebook and I can pass it on to VJ. And remember to leave a five-star rating on this episode and also this podcast channel because the more ratings you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts and, you know, we all need to talk about money and get better financial literacy. And if you want to leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms, that's even better. My name is Dev Raga and this is Dev Raga Personal Finance. And until next time, please make sure... You stay safe. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to this podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast and Glenn James are authorised representatives of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289.